Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, thousands of people have been infected with the coronavirus. Some have died, and more cases are being diagnosed in people all over the world, including in the United States. An infectious disease specialist addresses what's important to know about this new virus. In terms of comparisons to influenza, it's transmitted in very much the same way. So it's transmitted through respiratory droplets, and someone else is close enough that they would inhale or otherwise get exposed to those respiratory droplets. And a toxicologist from the Upstate New York Poison Center talks about what makes vaping dangerous and which drugs are most commonly abused. It has globally been used as a harm mitigation strategy. Again, it seems right now, as far as what we know, to be better than smoking traditional cigarettes, although on the long term we don't know. All that, along with a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about some common drugs of abuse. But first, the Division Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate University Hospital speaks about the outbreak of coronavirus. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. China is dealing with the outbreak of a respiratory illness caused by a new coronavirus first identified in the city of Wuhan. Thousands of people have been infected, some have died, and more cases are being diagnosed in people all over the world, including in the United States. To help us gain perspective on this outbreak, I have with me in the HealthLink on Air studio, Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and also the Division Chief of Infectious Disease. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Thanks for having me. Why is this outbreak of international concern? I think it's of international concern primarily because we have not seen this virus transmitted between people before. Uh, we don't know if people have been infected with this in the past, but they certainly have not been made as ill as they're being made now. Um, so I think that's one element. I think the second element is that the virus clearly is transmissible between people. So that's another thing that is of great concern. And uh, with the ease of travel, and of international travel in particular, um, it's uh, very easy for someone to be infected with the virus and then not have symptoms necessarily, get on a plane, and be in another country in a relatively short period of time. And then uh, the concern would be that they introduce the virus then into another country. And of course, we've seen that with um, the gradual increase in number of countries that have had uh, novel coronavirus infections uh, confirmed. So people might be infected and not know it, have no idea that they're sick or whatever, and, and right. show symptoms days later? Right, That's sure. Yeah, I mean, we think that the uh, um, the current evidence would suggest that the the incubation period is anywhere between one day and 14 days. So if, per, if someone is infected on day zero, they could start having symptoms if they're going to develop symptoms on between the day after they get infected all the way through up to two weeks after being infected. So how does that, um, just put that in terms that people might be familiar with influenza, how does this compare to influenza in the transmissibility and, and the ability to make people sick? how contagious it is. Well, yeah, so we actually don't know the answer to that yet. Um, that's something that folks are looking into. Um, there have been from some uh, groups in the UK who do infectious disease modeling um, who have put out some reports that they think uh, they think the, the number, they call it the R-naught, <laughs> it's the number of people that a certain, that a single person could infect, and they believe that that number is about two and a half. And so one person could infect two and a half people, and then those two and a half people could each infect two and a half people. So that's, that's a relatively high number for an infectious disease. Um, but we don't know for sure yet what, uh, you know, what that number is. But in terms of comparisons to influenza, um, it's transmitted in very much the same way. So it's transmitted through respiratory droplets, and respiratory droplets are 
Um, they're put in the air when people cough or when people sneeze or when people have, uh, you know, runny nose and uh, someone else is close enough that they would inhale or otherwise get exposed to those, uh, to those respiratory droplets. But don't we have thousands of people who um, get sick with influenza each year and some who die from that too? Uh, no, absolutely. And, and I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I'm much, I'm much more concerned um, about influenza uh, in central New York and in the United States than I am about novel coronavirus. I mean, if you look at the CDC's report just from this past week, they've already reported 15 million flu illnesses in the country this year. They've had about 140,000 people who have been hospitalized and over 8,200 people have already died this year from the flu. On average, about 35,000 people a year die from influenza in the United States. And yet there's not uh, headlines about that today. So. No, right. no, there's well, not. Well, let's talk about, because um, SARS mm-hmm. and MERS, those mm-hmm. are yeah. coronaviruses too, right? Correct. And yeah, the- so taking a step back, I mean, um, human coronaviruses were first identified back in the 1960s. Uh, we believe there's seven types that cause disease in people. Uh, four of those types are, they cause more mild-like illnesses. So they kind of, they cause the common cold. So about 10 to 30% of upper respiratory infections that occur um, mostly in the winter uh, are caused by coronaviruses. We at Upstate routinely test people who come in with respiratory illnesses. We will routinely test them for um, these common uh, coronaviruses. Uh, They can, in certain circumstances, um, uh, cause severe disease in certain types of people, but for the most part, it's a mild, self-limited disease. And then there's three other strains that cause more significant disease in people. So the first was SARS, so the uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus um, in 2002. Um, And then the second was around 2012. That's the MERS-CoV, so that's the Middle Eastern Respiratory uh, syndrome uh, coronavirus, which is largely um, uh, confined to uh, to the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. And then now we have the 2019 novel uh, coronavirus, which has come out of uh, come out of China. So are these uh, viruses that can be passed between humans and animals? So the thought is that that's how they initially um, find their way into people is that they jump um, they jump from likely bats. So it, we, we don't know for sure, but, um, you know, folks who study this in, in, in depth uh, and, and try to, to figure out these mysteries, um, you know, common thought is that they exist in bats and that the bats then pass them to other animals and then those other animals, um, uh, people come in contact with those other animals and, uh, and then the people, uh, the virus figures out how to exist in a person and then... Um, that person uh, can then get sick and then pass it to other people. But it really is, I mean, um, we don't, you know, I think we don't know more than we do know. (laughs) Um, And so it's an evolving, it's an evolving story. Do we know if a person had SARS, if that gives them immunity to this new coronavirus? Does it work that way? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. I don't think we know the answer to that. That would be, um, you would have to, you would have to find people who had been infected with SARS, and then you would have to see if those people had been infected with or exposed to the novel coronavirus and, and what happened. Um, I think that they are genetically distinct enough um, that there probably um, probably would not be significant cross-protection, but that's, that's not to say that it's not possible um, or that that concept could be leveraged to make you know, vaccine to use vaccine technologies uh, that were, you know, used previously to try and come up with a, a SARS or a MERS-CoV um, vaccine. But, you know, the the one thing that's different between SARS and MERS-CoV is the, um, the receptor that the person has to actually uh, capture the virus and then have the virus infect that person and, and make them sick. Um, we do know this, the receptors between SARS and MERS-CoV are are different, um, and they're trying to figure out right now what uh, which one the novel coronavirus is is closer to. I think early thinking is that it's closer to SARS than it is to MERS-CoV, but that's still an un, unfinished story. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and also the division chief of infectious disease. So let's talk about this particular coronavirus novel, COV-2019. What mm-hmm. do we know about it? What makes it so dangerous? Uh, well, it's. I think one of the reasons that it's dangerous is it would appear that um, people have not been widely exposed to it before. So there is no either individual or population level immunity to the virus. And so um, people would have to rely on what we call innate um, immune responses to try to protect them if they were, uh, if they were infected. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing we know is that, uh, and we're pretty confident, is that it can be spread from person to person, as I mentioned, probably through, you know, through primarily respiratory uh, droplets. Um, so that's the second thing that's, uh, that we know about it. Um, we know that it can cause severe disease in people. So people can get very severe pneumonia. They can get um, uh, ARDS, which is very uh, significant uh, a problem with people's lungs. And we know that it can kill people. So, you know, as of this morning, they were reporting about 6,057 confirmed cases and around 132 uh, 32 deaths. But, you know, what we what we don't know, we don't know the denominators, right? So we don't know the total number of people who've been exposed. We don't know the total number of people who have been infected. We don't know of those people who have been infected, how many people develop a mild disease that allows them to go on with their day versus a more significant disease that forces them to come to see a physician. Um, we only know sort of what's above the, the part, the part of the iceberg that's above the water. We don't know the part of the iceberg that's below, below the water. So, you know, if you take 132 deaths and you look at that in the context of how many confirmed infections there are, it's, a, you know, just over a 2% uh, case fatality rate. Uh, we don't know what the end of the story will look like, but for context, you know, SARS had about a 10% case fatality rate, and MERS-CoV had about a 35% um, case fatality rate. Uh, but this story is far from being complete. So the symptoms, is it like a, a cold? With Do you get a fever, a cough, a runny nose? I mean, what are the... Right. Just yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah, so it's mostly... Um, uh, it, it And what distinguishes the three severe coronaviruses from the other four that I had mentioned um, that cause disease in humans. Um, this is more lower respiratory tract. So this is fever, muscle aches, fatigue, cough, can have shortness of breath, could have chest discomfort. If you do, you know, an x-ray of the lungs or you do a CAT scan of the lungs, there is radiographic evidence of, of significant um, lung disease. Uh, so, yeah, so this is a lower respiratory tract. Uh, Does illness. it seem to target um, the elderly or the infirm, or, or does, is this an equal opportunity virus? Right. Yeah, again, that, that story is not complete. We know that it can infect people across a broad range of ages. Um, you know, some of the initial reports, um, based on very small numbers of patients, but some of the initial reports uh, that have come out kind of characterizing who gets sick and who doesn't. Um, there does not seem to be um, a, a significant uh, predilection for people with other medical comorbidities. Um, so it seems that there are as many people who get sick that may not have any pre-existing medical problems as those people who might be um, older and have significant medical problems. You know, my guess from extrapolating from other respiratory um, illnesses is that, uh, you know, the, the, the older you are and the more significant heart or lung disease that you have at baseline, the less likely that you're going to tolerate uh, an infection well. Um, so, but again, this is again an under, unwritten, uncompleted part, part of, the, of the novel coronavirus story. On television, we see um, people wearing paper masks out in public. Do those paper masks do much to keep the person wearing them safe or to keep the people around them safe? I think that probably um, uh, probably what it does effectively is to remind people <laughs> that there is uh, that there is something going on, um, and hopefully it prompts people to 
uh, if they're ill to avoid uh, crowded settings, if they're ill to ensure that uh, uh, they seek medical attention, to make sure that everybody's very frequently washing their hands with soap and water, trying to avoid touching, uh, touching your nose or touching your mouth. Um, you know, today there's, yeah, there have been things in the news about, uh, whether those masks really do anything to be able to prevent, um, the types of, uh, respiratory droplets that people breathe in and, and can cause an infection. And, um, I think the thinking is probably no. Um, but there are masks like the N95 mask, which is, um, that's what we use in the hospital. That's what we use as part of our, um, personal protective equipment, packet, if you will. So goggles and gloves and gowns and these N95 masks. And those do protect people from um, these uh, respiratory, respiratory droplets. We'll be right back with more information about the coronavirus. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate's Dr. Stephen Thomas about the coronavirus outbreak. Can I talk to you about how public health experts um, zeroed in on where this virus started? I mean, we've read uh, that a market in Wuhan, how would mm. they know that? Just from, I mean, if you've got sick people showing up in the hospital, how right. would you go about tracing it back? Yeah. Um, so, you know, unfortunately we get a lot of practice with this sort of, uh, with this sort of thing. Um, and, and it is, um, in the end, or I should say in the beginning, it's just very good medical detective work. It's, uh, epidemiology. So, you know, whenever, especially as an infectious disease person, whenever we, um, see someone who has an illness that is kind of unexplained, we ask all sorts of questions about, you know, what do you do? How do you spend your day? Have you traveled recently? What did you do when you traveled? Where did you stay? What kind of people were you um, around? Did you have contact with anyone who was sick? And so whenever there is a cluster of illnesses, like a respiratory illness or a pneumonia, that either looks the same or the numbers are greater than what you would expect for, let's say, a normal flu season, right? A normal flu and cold season. Um, and you start asking the same questions to a bunch of people and you start seeing common threads among those people, um, then that gets you thinking. So then the other thing that you can do um, once you have suspicion is, uh, you know, they're able to isolate the virus from people. And so now they're isolating the same type of virus from people. They're doing, they're developing the genetic sequence. And so they understand genetically that it's the same virus um, and kind of all those tools you triangulate into where you think this likely came from. And if you think that there was an animal reservoir, so if you think it, you know, um, bats or other animals that might be sold at that market, then you can go investigate and take samples of animals and, and, the, and, uh, um, and do the same type of testing that you do in people. And then you can, you can match up virus to virus and, and, and now I, I am not an epidemiologist, so I just gave you a very simplified sure, view, sure. but, um, but that's the general, uh, the general concept. How effective are quarantines at preventing the spread of something like this? That's a, that's a really good question. And that's a question of some, um, uh, debate and, and, uh, people are, um, People are getting into heated discussions uh, on social media uh, uh, about this um, because, you know, about 60 million people have been have been put on sort of restricted movement, uh, you know, within within China. And people are wondering whether that's a good thing or or a bad thing. Um, you know, it if I guess it would depend on when you uh, implemented a quarantine Um and in, in this case, you know, people are quoting that, you know, up to 5 million people had already departed that area prior to the restricted movement um, policies being being put in place. So they question they question the value of that. 
Um, I mean, in, in general, so quarantine or controlled monitoring, um, these can be tools that public health people need to implement in, uh, uh, in an epidemic or a pandemic setting. And it, it certainly, um, it can play a role in ensuring that people who are sick or people who are under suspicion of having been infected will not come in contact with people who, who have not. The challenge is when you have an incubation period of up to 14 days, when you, uh, meaning someone could not be ill but have the virus and be able to transmit to other people for two weeks, um, you know, that, that person may not have their movement restricted, right? So now they have a two week, uh, they have a two week period where they can be moving around and doing, you know, whatever it is that they do. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not answering your question directly because I don't know if there is a clear answer on, uh, the benefits well, of we, quarantine. We or don't control. know much about yeah. this virus. It sounds like we we don't know how effective it might end up being or not. Right. right. Well, let me ask you this then, because there's a lot of travel restrictions, airlines mm-hmm. that aren't flying to China and, and such. How risky is I'm it sorry. for a person in Wuhan who's healthy to walk down the street if if they're keeping their hands washed and they're covering their mouth when they sneeze and they're not right. shaking hands with people? How how risky is it just to exist there? Um, yeah, so I, so I have the same information that everybody else has who has access to the internet. So we only know what's being reported and what's coming out of, out of the country. So I, I can't speak, of course, to Wuhan. Um, you know, if, if other countries are to send medical experts in China is to accept their help, I'm sure that, um, that, you know, there'll be more, there'll probably be more information. Um, you know, if, but if we just think about how it's transmitted, so your highest risk of being infected is if you are within close proximity to someone else who is infected and who is infective um, and they're coughing or sneezing or, they're, um, or you are exposed to their secretions, spit and snot and things like that. Um, and we usually think we use a figure of about six feet. So the highest risk zone would be in about a six feet you know, six foot radius. Um, so, you know, I was reading this morning that many, many towns and villages and uh, uh, even places like, you know, uh, uh, Macau, which is a huge uh, gambling center, right, in uh, Hong Kong, uh, that it's kind of a ghost town. So I think people are largely staying inside. Um, I think people are obviously very concerned. Um, but really, it's that six foot kind of high risk zone that we that we worry about. Well, there are some cases that have been diagnosed in America, but mm-hmm. is this outbreak something Americans should be concerned about? Um, uh, so concerned, I would say that they should be aware. Uh, I would say that they um, should be, especially if they're in, uh, you know, the healthcare field or travel industry. They should be vigilant to make sure that they have. You know, situational awareness about is somebody, you know, uh, is someone ill? And if they are ill, have they, where have they traveled and where have they been? Um, and once those questions are answered, if that person is, you know, meets certain uh, criteria that they, um, you know, that they be isolated and that some experts then assess the situation a little more deeply. You know, should the, should the general population be concerned? I don't think I don't think we're there yet. Again, I would be more concerned about influenza. (laughs) I would be more concerned about um, people not wanting to get vaccinated. I would be more concerned about um, people not practicing good hand hygiene, um, you know, during our winter season when we, again, have about 35,000 people a year die in this country from, you know, from influenza. So, um, so I, I, I think, uh, I think concerned might be a strong word. I would just say alert and vigilant. Are people at risk here if they receive packages or products that come from China? Uh, no, not to my not to my knowledge. I guess one could. Um, I mean, you could. Uh, I guess hypothesize that if if this truly is from an animal reservoir and somebody were to get, um, uh, you know, animals or or um, 
meat or something of that nature that that, you know, hypothetically, I guess, but um, that would be a stretch. Okay. Well, the CDC is telling people um, in America if they have symptoms and they have a history of recent travel to China to call ahead before they go to the hospital. Absolutely. So why are they, why is that? What does the hospital do before they get there? Yeah, so typically, and, and I should, I should make this point uh, clear. So we, uh, especially in, in central New York, I'll just speak to central New York, um, we have a lot of travelers. We have a lot of international students. We have um, a relatively large immigrant population. And so, you know, we are constantly um, uh, monitoring people who are sick and where they have tra- where they may have potentially traveled. Um, that is an everyday activity that we participate in at all the hospitals around here. So if someone comes in ill, they're going to ask, have you traveled outside the country in the last, you know, 21 days or 28 days, something like that. Um, we did that for measles. We did that for Ebola. It's just, it's a constant, it's a constant thing that we always, um, that we always do. So the idea is, as I look at it is first, you know, you maintain your suspicion you ask the right questions, and in doing that, you identify someone who may be at risk. And in this case, it would be, do you have signs or symptoms consistent with a respiratory infection? And have you traveled to China or Asia? Or have you been recently exposed to somebody who has traveled to China or Asia? Um, And then, so the first thing then is to identify. And then the second thing is to then isolate. So if someone were to come in and say, I, I just got back from China and I've, you know, I came back seven days ago and now I have a fever and a cough and I don't feel well, um, then that person would immediately have a mask placed on them. They would be put into isolation. What I mean by isolation is just a private room. Um, and we have rooms that are, um, all hospitals have rooms that are um, specific for people with respiratory infections. So the way the air flows in the room um, maximally protects um, the public and the staff from that person. So the person would be isolated. Uh, and then um, the physicians, uh, and usually they will, whether it's an emergency department or a clinic or something like that, they'll usually call the infectious disease physicians. They'll call the infection control um, uh, uh, folks. And then we will then evaluate the situation and evaluate We'll do a history, we'll do a physical exam, we'll take some blood, we'll uh, um, do a chest x-ray, and we'll make an assessment of how likely we think um, the risk is that this person may have uh, the infection. Uh, And at that point, we talk to the State Department of Health and the physicians at the State Department of Health. Um, And Onondaga uh, County is where we start, Um, but it may escalate to the state, uh, potentially. And then together we make a decision, does this person need to be tested specifically for the novel coronavirus? So yes, there, yes there no. is a test that there can is. tell the you. There is. The CDC is doing the test. So if everyone agrees, yeah, this person should be tested, um, then they'll remain in isolation. We will take care of them. We'll get the samples that are required, uh, and then we'll follow the protocol. And the samples ultimately go to Albany, to the Wadsworth Laboratory where they do some testing, and then the definitive test is done uh, at the CDC uh, down in Atlanta. And then they will communicate back to us what the, uh, what the results are. Um, and, you know, oftentimes, uh, and in addition to testing, though, for, uh, again, you're more likely to have influenza, you're more likely to have one of these other respiratory viruses than you are to have novel coronavirus. But to go back to your initial point, Ideally, yes, the person would self-identify and say, either call their primary care doctor or call the emergency department or, you know, whatever, and say, I recently traveled to Asia. I now have fever and cough and shortness of breath. What do you want me to do? Because then we can, you know, we can meet them outside of the hospital, right? We can get the mask and we can help them to get, you know, avoid a lot of traffic and avoid a lot of people and get them into that private, uh, get them into that private room. So, uh, how is this recommended to be treated? I mean, right now it's supportive care. 
Right now it is just supportive care. Um, so uh, there are some trials going on now with uh, um, certain types of antivirals that have been explored before with SARS and MERS-CoV. They've ex- been explored uh, in animal models. And these are, um, what I say by antiviral, is these are, these are medications that prevent the virus from rep- replicating. So the idea being people get sick because they have lots of virus replicating in their body. If And the sicker you are, uh, and the more virus you have, the sicker you are. And so if you can stop the replication process and allow the body's immune system to kick in um, and give it a little bit of help, then you may be able to reduce uh, disease severity. So there are trials that are going on now in China. Um, and uh, but but as of now, it's it's supportive care. Supportive care, yeah. so things to help reduce the fever or the cough severity or yeah, make sure that you can support their oxygen requirements. Um, and uh, you know, if they have other problems, if uh, make sure that they have enough uh, volume in their blood vessels, make sure that their kidneys are okay. You know, just basically um, supportive care for anyone. I mean, it'd be a similar process to anybody who's. Uh, critically ill. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, in in some of the folks that uh, have developed severe disease, they've required um, ventilator support. So they can't breathe well on their own. So they need to be put on a ventilator to help breathe uh, for them. Well, thank you to Upstate Infectious Disease Chief, Dr. Stephen Thomas. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what makes vaping so dangerous? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Drugs, both legal and illegal, are constantly in the news and constantly presenting challenges to medical professionals as well as society at large. Today, we'll take a look at some drugs that have been in the spotlight in the past year and see what lessons medical experts might have learned. In the HealthLink on Air studio with me is Dr. Christine Stork. She's a toxicologist, someone who studies the safety and effectiveness of drugs, as well as a professor of emergency medicine at Upstate, and she serves as clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. Thank you for being here, Dr. Stork. Thank you for having me. So in looking back over the past year, the practice of vaping has drawn widespread attention. Can you talk about that? What is, what is vaping? Yeah, so while electronic cigarette use are using um, a, a device to aerosolize vapor of uh, cigarette is, is what's been used for vaping. It's been used for a very long period of time. This is nothing new. However, in just about June or July, There have been these case clusters of people having acute lung injury that were surprising the medical community. So this has really been, you know, within the past year, even less than a year ago. Last year, this time, we were not talking about lung injury due to vaping. And so we still have a lot of questions to answer about what's really causing this lung injury, right? Yeah, I mean, this has been a great coordinated effort between local and national departments of health, the CDC, um, as very, and other agencies to try to figure out what's going on. Because by far and large, you know, we have a lot of young, otherwise healthy people that are having this acute lung injury that doesn't make a whole lot of sense from the historical use of vape products to try to stop smoking. And some of these are people that have just started vaping and some of them are people who've been vaping for a while, right? Yes. Um, Again, vaping is not new. It's something that's been around for a while. Um, And again, this is a very new um, circumstance. It is in people who vape um, commonly. So it's not someone in their first time trying a vape device. Most of the people that have had Lung injury are people who vape every day. So is this considered an outbreak in New York State at this point? Yes, it's considered an outbreak in both New York State and in the nation. So there have been, you know, I believe over 2,500 cases of confirmed 
um, acute lung injury after use of electronic cigarettes or vaping. There have been, I believe, about 60 deaths reported, maybe a little bit more than that right now, because, uh, you know, we just had our second and third case in New York State identified, but uh, it's still an ongoing process. The numbers have fallen a bit since their peak in September, um, but we still are seeing cases. What does this say about the safety of vaping in general, though? Because vaping was, I thought, supposed to help smokers kind of wean themselves off cigarettes, but now it's got this sort of deadly threat. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because the FDA has not produced regulation as to electronic cigarette or vaping devices because they wanted to learn some more about it. So as far as short-term use of the historical vape products before this outbreak in people trying to quit smoking, it it improves lung function relative to smoking traditional cigarettes acutely. So just regular things that it does. But we also know that using a vape device in a naive patient, someone who does not smoke, decreases lung capacity acutely. So it's not entirely Mm. safe to use. The other thing that's very much unknown about vaping, um, even the historical use of vaping, and we won't know for many, many years, is what are the long-term consequences of vaping. So it has globally been used as a harm mitigation strategy. Again, it seems right now, as far as what we know, to be better than smoking traditional cigarettes, although on the long term, we don't know. And they do have nicotine in them, right? The Yes. The vape products, most of them have nicotine, even the ones that say that they don't have nicotine many times do contain nicotine within them. It's fairly highly concentrated. So of the newer products that the teenagers, you know, have have been attracted to, traditionally about one pod of those is about a pack of cigarettes. Wow. So they're getting a lot more. Yeah, they are getting a lot more. And the vape fluid is also a health risk to small children, should they ingest that. I mean, cigarettes are a risk to small children, even in fairly low quantities. So in kids, one cigarette's enough to cause some toxicity in a small child, two cigarette butts. Um, But of this vape fluid, again, it's so concentrated. Remember, one pod, which contains a very small amount of liquid, is a pack of cigarettes. So even a taste, a lick, is enough to cause toxicity in a small child. Well, let's shift things a little and talk about unintentional poisoning deaths uh, using the drugs fentanyl and carfentanyl have caused a lot of unintentional poisoning deaths, yeah. right? In this area and in New York State, it's been largely a result of fentanyl. Most of our heroin, or people who say they're using heroin, are using either a mixture of heroin and fentanyl together in the death cases or fentanyl alone. And f- tell us again, what is, what is fentanyl? Fentanyl is, um, it's an opioid. It's an opioid analgesic. It's very, it's in the same classification as heroin. It's also used, fentanyl is used pharmaceutically for pain control. Oh, for pain control. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain what is an analgesic? Yeah, an analgesic is um, a, a drug, a pharmaceutical that's used to treat pain. But the fentanyl that is being sold illicitly as heroin um, is not pharmaceutically diverted fentanyl. It is fentanyl that's being produced in other countries and being shipped to this country, very similarly to how heroin is produced in other countries and shipped to this country. It's more potent than heroin, so you don't need as much of a quantity to cause um, therapeutic effects. So larger, uh, smaller shipments are able to be sent and have um, kind of a large opioid effect, and that's what they're looking for. That's what heroin's opioid and then carfentanil is carfentanil like- is an opioid as well. It's um, again so fentanyl and carfentanil are both synthetic opioids, so they're not found in nature. Carfentanil is pharmaceutically used as an animal tranquilizer because of its potency. It's very potent relative to fentanyl, which is very potent relative to heroin. Um, so the concern being that very small amounts of carfentanil would be required to cause significant toxicity in humans. Has the crisis in opioid use and addiction stabilized or subsided or otherwise changed in the past year? 
Um, there have been a large, there's been large advances, and there still needs to be more in harm reduction pathways for people who have addiction to opioids. You know, there's more avenues for treatment. There's uh, more use of buprenorphine or suboxone. There are there's many legislative efforts to try to enhance availability of these harm reduction strategies to, you know, the use of naloxone acutely when people have, you know, acute effects due to heroin to keep them alive so that they can get into therapy. All those things have been really good things. Um, I think the problem of addiction to opioid is still alive and well. Um, Perhaps some of these harm reduction paths have stabilized the amount of deaths I don't think we're seeing a huge rise in deaths like we were seeing for many years. It seems to be about the same with maybe small increases. There's clear, clearly better recognition in deaths as to what the substances were that were used. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with toxicologist Christine Stork from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Are there other drugs that are leading to um, overdose deaths? So, yes, um, I guess kind of focusing more on illicit substances, I think it's important to remember that stimulant overdoses and deaths have not gone away and, in fact, are increasing. Stimulants would be like cocaine? Things like cocaine, yeah. Cocaine is prevalent in even in Syracuse, throughout upstate New York. We don't talk about it that much because opioid seems to have overshadowed a lot of the, the talk about cocaine, but cocaine is alive and well. Um, we're seeing also increases in use of other stimulants like methamphetamine and other chemically derived um, stimulants. Okay. Are there other uh, drugs of abuse that you're seeing at the Upstate Poison Center that have sort of emerged or reemerged in the past year? You know, um, we do see a lot of the newer drugs of abuse, um, things like Kratom, um, we were seeing not as much, but there is tyanoptine is being used. There are some cases of that as well. So talk to me about what is kratom. Um, so kratom is in uh, a plant-derived chemical that has been used in other countries for years. It's actually in other countries it's used very much like how we use caffeine. You know, hmm. So a little bit is being used, and in very small doses, it tends to have a stimulatory effect, very similar to having your cup of coffee in the morning. But at higher doses, it has an analgesic effect and even an opioid-like effect. So in this country, people are buying it largely over the Internet, using Kratom. It's not regulated at this point in time, and at very high doses, um, getting this a similar effect to other opioid analgesics. People who like using it say it helps them not to use other opioids, and it's still, it helps them with withdrawal symptoms and, and eases their pain. And it's an herb, so it's not really regulated. It's an herbal product? It's, or? A, it's an herbal product that is, um, yeah, it's not regulated. Huh. Can, are people overdosing on it? Yeah, we have been seeing cases of overdose on it. It has similar symptoms to opioids in the overdose setting. So people who um, take too much opioids and overdose on opioids, they tend to have mental status depression. So they go to sleep, hard to arouse, difficult to wake up. But the real problem is the brain shuts down to their drive for breathing. So when people die from opioids, they're dying because they just are not breathing and they don't get oxygen to their tissue sites. Now, the other drug you mentioned, tianeptine, I believe that's an antidepressant. It's an antidepressant in other countries. Um, It is more used for analgesic effects in the United States as a drug of abuse. Again, it's something that you would have to order over the internet. Is it, but it's a drug? It's a drug in other countries. It's not a drug in the United States. Is it legal to order it over the internet and get it in America? I believe there are no regulations. Huh. So what does it do? And are, are people mixing it with opioids? Or? Again, very similar symptoms. Um, you know, I think people are trying to find a substitute for opioids. 
So thinking, I'll use this other chemical, it's so much safer. I think even within the United States, we saw pharmaceutical companies making those same, same large statements over the years. So tramadol is like the best example of that. So, you know, back when I was working in a pharmacy, I remember someone coming in and saying, oh, we have this new analgesic and it's not an opioid, so it's not addicting. So chemically, it's not an opioid. When you look at its structure, it doesn't fit into the classification, classification of being an opioid. But when you bring it into your body, it works on the same receptors. It does the same thing that opioids do. It has the same effects. Anything that stimulates opioid receptors, we have specific things that counteract with our opioids to cause clinical effects, are going to cause the same issues and problems as chemically, structurally designated opioids. So I think now there's been a kind of an enlightening for many people in that that particular drug that's not structurally an opioid, in fact, is just like an opioid and people abuse, uh, uh, misuse and have problems when taking too much of those medications. Are there any trends you're watching for in the coming year or years regarding drug use and poisonings? You know, I think we really have to keep our eye on, you know, this, the lung injury due to vaping. I think a lot is still unknown with regard to it. You know, what exactly is causing the problem? Is it that, is it the amount of use? Is it some of the excipients? So excipients being, being the things that are in a, a product that are not designed for drug effect, you know, so for example, when you take like a, a Tylenol, right? Very tiny shaving of that is actually acetaminophen, the chemical that you want for your headache. The rest of it's filler so that it looks like a tablet. You take it. So just like that in here, you know, the vape pod, that liquid, it's not 100% nicotine. There's other things in other there things. to help it become a vapor so that you can inhale it and get the effect that you want, make it the right particle size, get into your lung the right way. And at least currently right now, we do know that in the uh, lung washings of patients who've had lung injury, they've only had 29 patients where they've had washed their lungs, but in 100% of those case, cases, they have found this vitamin E acetate. So currently, that's part of the, the thought that maybe it's this excipient, this non-drug product that's really causing the lung injury. It's not the nicotine itself. Um, you know, I think that so far, that's a good working theory. I mean, we do know it's in a lot of the products that have been affiliated with it. We know it's in those lung washings. The missing piece right now is what does vitamin E acetate do in lungs? You know, there's been no research. I suspect it's actively being researched at this moment. Um, and I'd be really interested to see because it would re be really nice to close that loop. Because so right now, you know, in public health terms, you'd say there's an association, but there's no causation. So as soon as that data is available, then we'll know a whole lot more. But vitamin E acetate is not contained in the jewel pods that you go buy. Oh. And it's not contained in other kind of regular store products for vaping. It's more, what we're seeing it is in more the buying the bootleg pods off the internet because they're cheaper or buying THC or marijuana containing vape pods, which people do as well. So people have to figure out what to mix them in. They're, they're doing it in, in a very uncontrolled fashion. And those are the products that we're finding the vitamin E acetate in. So again, we don't know yet, but it, it, at some point, hopefully in 2020, we'll be able to close the loop on the causation of the vaping lung injury. Well, good to know. Thank you so much to Dr. Christine Stork. She's a toxicologist and the clinical director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Psychiatrist, bioethicist, and emeritus professor Robert W. Daly creates an indelible portrait of how aging does not slow down the mind's ability to ask questions, relive old times, and confront one's mortality. Here is Why Does It Matter That? 
Why does it matter that you, Darvish, pitching for the Dodgers, quickly lost two games in the World Series? Because he was well-mannered when speaking of his failures to fans and teammates? Or because when younger, I, too, was sometimes badly beaten as a pitcher? Why does it matter, 60 years ago, the leaders of the great city, the university, the hospital, the medical profession, the educators, believed it good for young doctors, men and women, to care 130 hours a week for people who were indigent, sick, and dying? Because their work saved more lives than it cost? Because it was cheap, high-quality labor? Or because now I know that we harm one another when we are wrong about what is good. Why does it matter that two of my children did not call me today? Because they are busy with others, with the world, with their problems? Or because I am sick and lonely? Why does it matter that I hear the sound of a fan blowing behind me when there is no fan blowing behind me? Because I have water in my ears? Or because I am about to have a stroke? Why does it matter that I then find myself asking, was I lucky in love? Because I have been pressed down since Elizabeth departed? Or because soon, if the sound of a fan is not a prelude to oblivion, I will not be so lucky. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, researchers are looking to improve the side effects of chemotherapy. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.